Okay, here we are, September the 28th, 2014, uh, lecture discussion number 170 on the Book of Romans. And I have been trying to get to the Korah Rebellion, as you might know. Now, I've learned that I'm hard to understand when I move to the board, and I'll try to do better, though I doubt that I will. Trying to get to the Korah Rebellion, number 16, and I'm trying to get to the Parable of the Talents, Matthew 25. That's my plan. I'm not doing so good. The reason I'm doing that is so that uh, I might be able to tie them uh, to Joshua 7. I will tie them to Joshua 7 so that I can cement my position on Romans 9, 12 through 13. I've been planning this for a couple of weeks. And I'm repeating myself for all of those who are keeping score, which is the vast Internet audience in particular. And as I said, I'm not doing so well. Though last Sunday, I actually uh, began to reveal my stance with respect to the meaning of Jacob's limp. I think Jacob's limp is greatly significant in the Old Testament. Uh, uh, there's something in your bulletin that C.S. Lewis wrote about all of this reality being a shadow of something else. And I believe he was absolutely correct that way. Bill was talking about Ada Ruth Abershon. Uh, uh, her whole point was is that there were pictures and types of Christ just permeated in the Old Testament, uh, filled uh, to overflowing. And the key is to get yourself tuned into that. I think C.S. Lewis thought the same thing, but he extrapolated it out to the entire physical reality, testifies of Christ, and he thought it would be wise for, uh, for humanity to figure that out. And that's in your bulletin, his quote that uh, addresses that. That's what I'm trying to do with Jacob's limp, too. I'm trying to make you understand what its meaning is. He has a limp. And if you missed it last week, I've long considered that Jacob's limp or his wound that results from this contact that he has with God, Christ himself, God himself, Jesus God, however you want to say it, the Ancient of Days, the I Am, all the same. Uh, this is the second person of the triune Godhood has this interaction, a physical contest, if you will, or a, a confrontation, for a lack of uh, the right words to describe it, with Jacob. And, and I think that this limp, uh, and I'm, I'm unshakable here, I, I, I would say to you, I know that this limp or this wound is the, a reminder to Jacob of a fundamental salvation principle that he had wrong. And this salvation principle is one which uh, that he had wrong. It's one that will continually be and has been a struggle uh, to the nation of Israel. It's a stumbling block, as Paul defines it, to the nation of Israel. And therefore, it's directly related to circumcision. Now, if that made sense to you, yay, I did my job. If it didn't make sense to you, let me continue. Once I take this limp of Jacob and I tie it to circumcision, then I go directly to Moses and Zipporah. And if that makes sense to you, yay. If it doesn't, I'll keep fighting. But those things connect. The limp connects to uh, a salvation principle. That connects to a struggle or a stumbling block for Israel that connects to circumcision. Circumcision directly connects to Jacob 
and I'm sorry, directly connects to Joshua. So I have Jacob and Moses now to Joshua and the beautiful garment. And that one's not as direct uh, in my view, but I submit that it is nonetheless apparent, uh, at least eventually. And I have said many times in the past that when you run into the word circumcision, I want you to learn to teach yourself to replace that word in the text with Christ crucified. And that will help you understand the symbol that is circumcision in Scripture. It's a shortcut to understanding the symbol. Remember that Zipporah in Exodus when Christ confronts Moses just as he confronted Jacob, just as he confronts Joshua. Those three have that in common. Zipporah, after the circumcision event, uh, she calls uh, Moses the husband of blood. So circumcision has this title to it, if for lack of a better explanation. The husband of blood. And Zipporah's words are powerfully uttered. Anyway... <coughs> Last Sunday, I submitted that the key to Jacob's limp was that it was a lasting reminder to Jacob that he wasn't wrestling with Christ. What do I mean by that? He really wasn't. He thought he was. That was Christ. That was God. That That was clear to him. But he was never really wrestling. He just thought he was wrestling. This is the applicational part of the lecture today. So you heard me correctly. Let me say it a different way. Jacob could not, Jacob did not, Jacob never held on to Christ. He has no capability to do it. And Christ, at some point during the darkness, because he's wrestling through the darkness, what is the darkness? Begin to say to yourself, why did they wrestle all night? Why didn't they wrestle in the day? The darkness signifies something. Darkness signifies, uh, is a symbol for something to you, to me, to everybody. What is it? Winter. It's death. Jacob thought he was wrestling and at some point... I believe, certainly after the darkness, Christ makes a profound truth absolutely clear as you can. Because, you see, I believe the inevitable occurred, that Jacob let go of Christ. He can't hold on to him. Think of yourself trying to hold on, um, I don't know, to a, a, the windshield of a car to use a stupid movie. Uh, analogy that's going 100 miles an hour, swerving back and forth. You're not going to hold on for very long. You're coming off, especially if he hits the brakes, right? You fall down, go boom. Jacob is wrestling with God and the inevitable occurred probably much sooner than we might think. When he let go, what happened? Nothing. That's the point. That's why he has the limp. What I mean by that is that Christ continued dragging Jacob around. 
Think small child holding on to the leg of an elephant. The child lets go and is still attached to the leg of the elephant. So who's holding on to who is the whole point of this, right? The child is revealed to have no role in the attachment to the elephant. Christ, the, the, the Christ is providing all of the power. The child that is us, we have no power. We have no strength. If it's our job to hold on to Christ, how long does it take for us to fall off? I used to describe salvation as a basketball. Christ passes it to you. How long before Satan would strip it out of your hands and run off with it? Go down and dunk it on the other end. Christ has to give it to you. Then he has to duct tape it to you. Then he has to super glue you to him or you lose the ball. Instantly. You have no strength. We have no strength. We're the child. He's the elephant. Uh, he's, uh, we're just, the elephant doesn't describe it. It's all I got. Salvation is not of the baby holding on. We are the baby holding on. Jacob's limp is evidence. The reason he gave him that wound is to, to illustrate to him that you have no capability of holding on to me. You have weakness. That's what you have. You have the inability to hold on. And now I hope you can see that this is a picture, a shadow, a portrait of us trying to accomplish our own salvation by wrestling with it. Now, we're supposed to wrestle with it, but we cannot work our way to our salvation. There is a difference. You have to understand what you are wrestling with. Okay, hope that, uh, I just wanted to repeat it because I, I don't remember when I said it. I might have done it in the post game, so I decided to put it into the record. Now, off we uh, should go to the Cory Rebellion, which is more attestation that the children of Achan were not buried or executed with their father because they conspired with him somehow, even though they're eight or nine years old, because he was born in the wilderness, cannot be more than 40. He has young children. Those children were not executed with their father because somehow they helped him bury uh, the garment. That's uh, an absurd position. And so we're going to Korah to... to, uh, uh, get gain more confirmation that the that the children were not there in that stoning. The bodies of the dead thirty six were heaped upon as the co-conspirator. And I know I, I know I got it. Uh, how much more of this is necessary? It's already unequivocal to me that the dead thirty six are rebellious against the Lord. They have a an antichrist connection there in some way. Uh, we'll get to that uh, when we do get to the core rebellion. But there are those who remain convinced they are writing to me. So I'm offering up Korah this week and the hidden talent um, that uh, of the parable of the talents uh, for all the rest of that also resist. Um, but I, I got this far thinking that's what I was going to do. But I got a letter. And yes, I get real letters. This isn't an email. This is an actual real letter. Mailed. And everything. What's it cost now to mail a letter? Twenty bucks? What is it? Okay. Somebody said uh, it's still only fifteen dollars for a letter. I'm joking. Uh, I did hear a wonderful thing. Uh, you know how the minimum wage is set? 
how they set the minimum wage. You might not know this. This is where you learn wonderful things here. The minimum wage is exactly uh, the hourly minimum wage. Uh, one half of that is exactly the cost of a Big Mac. So that's how it works. If you have $10 an hour as a minimum wage, the Big Mac will cost $5. If they raise the minimum wage to $20, the Big Mac will cost $10. That's how it works. Why would anybody struggle with that? Uh, but apparently everyone seems to. I thought that was actually very illustrative. Okay, I have this wonderful letter. I'll only read half of it because the first part is stuff that... Uh, uh, some of you know uh, Janet from Oklahoma because she was here for a while, but I don't want to put that out on the Internet. And so I'll just read this part. I am enjoying, and this is Janet from Oklahoma. She asked about Tamar and how it is that Tamar relates to Romans 9, which is where we're headed, right? Which is our context, specifically Jacob and Esau. And well, she didn't really ask about Jacob and Esau, but she came really close, and I knew she would have eventually, so I'm just going to save her a few minutes and tell you that she is talking about Jacob and Esau in her letter. Because you see, Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and Bathsheba, are you aware of who they are? They're in Matthew 1. Uh, barely can spell Matthew anymore. They're in Matthew 1, verses 1 through 6. Let me repeat that. Tamar, Rahab, I should put it on the board. Tamar. These are four women you should know, especially if you're a woman. Tamar, Rahab, uh, Ruth, and Bathsheba. Those four are in Matthew 1, 1 through 6. Four women listed in the genealogy of Christ. In other words, they're in the messianic line, those four women, and they are all those four non-Jews. So I have four non-Jews in the messianic line. Ask why? What was it about these four women that got them into the messianic line? Is it a good place to be in the messianic line? It's a place of incredible honor. And these four non-Jewish women are extraordinarily honored. Rahab, what is she, by the way? She's a temple prostitute inside of Jericho. Rahab is in the catalog of the heroes of the faith in, in Hebrews 11, specifically Hebrews 11.31. So these are, you can make the case, the foremost honored women in all of the Old Testament. And some people will add Mary because Mary, uh, the Virgin Mary, because she's in uh, Matthew 1.16. She's not uh, in specifically grouped with these, but I won't object to you wanting to add Mary. But obviously, these four are special in God's eyes. So whenever you read about Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba, you should know they are special in God's eyes. And so we're going to place them side by side and investigate why that's so. And Tabar and Rahab, these two immediately connect each other because both of them are thought to be what? Almost 100% of all commentaries. The Bible that you have in that portion where the author or the person who compiled the commentary, uh, he will uh, immediately identify these two women as what? Bad. 
prostitutes. And so those two, I have two harlots, if you will. Those two immediately come down and join together. They're intertwined right off the bat. I'm getting ahead of myself here, so I need to read Janet's letter now. Janet from Oklahoma. I am enjoying re-listening to the lectures from July and August. There are people out there that re-listen to things. How's that for making you feel bad, huh? Every now and then I listen to one of my lectures that somebody has listened to to figure out what did they like about it, what is in here. I don't speak clearly. I know that. I had to go to speech therapy as a little kid. I know I don't speak clearly. I can't stand to listen to me. So I don't, but every now and then I do. And I wonder how anyone can understand that, all the slurring and swashing around that I do. I can't help it. That's why I don't get, have good control of a trumpet, too. Over in large tongue. tongue. I am re enjoying re-listening to the lectures from July and August. I had a question about the Aiken incident in Joshua 7. I have always wondered how the Judah-Tamar incident with the twins. Whoa, that's cool, isn't it? Twins. I've always wondered how the Judah-Tamar incident with the twins, Perez and Zerah, was connected to other things. There is a scarlet thread involved in the birth of the twins. Oh, yes, there is. Who else might have a scarlet thread? Yeah. Now, the words are different. Let me say that right off the bat. The words are not the same, but we'll get to that as I go along here. There is a scarlet thread involved in the birth of the twins, and a scarlet cord is part of the story of Jericho, where the devoted thing was taken. As you pointed out so clearly, Zerah was the ancestor of Achan. So the son of Tamar is the ancestor to the one who took the beautiful garment. Is... uh, I find this an interesting piece of information. Is this the same Zerah as in Genesis 38? Yes, it is. I am thinking it is. Do these two stories connect in some way? Yes, they do. Is Achan's action of taking the devoted things have something to do with the breach? Kind of. If you're not familiar with the Tamar Judah story, we'll get to it in a minute. I looked up the meanings of both names and got even more confused. Pharaoh's meaning a break, a gap, or a, or a rupture. In other words, a breach. And Zerah meaning rising of lights, a dawning, as a, or, or a sunrise. It, it is used metaphorically of the Lord rising over Zion. If you please give me at least a hint of the solution, if any. If I am wandering off in the weeds... Uh, please tell me so I can get back on the path again. Or, I'm, or am I making it more difficult than it really is? It's almost impossible to make it more difficult than it really is. So no. And she says, take care, love you all very much. Janet. Janet has appropriately connected Tamar to Jericho. She's absolutely right about that. 
And by the way, that's representative of the audience that we have out there. That's what they all do. And it's very impressive, I have to admit. And Janet has also uh, uh, appropriately uh, just not just connected Jericho to Tamar, but also uh, certainly to Achan, who descends directly from Tamar. The story of Judah and Tamar is a very mysterious story. I don't know if you've read it. I hope you have. It belongs into the Joshua uh, beautiful garment discussion. Absolutely it does. And she's trying to figure out how. And it isn't easy and good for her to try. But most commentators who take on Tamar don't go to Joshua immediately. They go immediately to who? Because of what? They go immediately to Jacob and Esau because Tamar has twins. And when you're in Jacob and Esau, you end up in Romans 9. Tamar bore twins. That alone is all you need to get to Esau, Jacob, and who else? Cain and Abel. Go find your twins. And those twins, by the way, are supernatural with Tamar. Rebecca had twins. And Rebecca had Esau and Jacob. Right? What does Esau mean again? Yeah, hairy red if you want. Most would say red. What does Jacob mean? Heel grabber or heel holder. This is very important because the older son of Tamar, I'm sorry, the older son of Rebekah was red. And I have this older, younger thing. Esau is older, Jacob is younger. Romans 9 tells me that the younger or the older will serve the younger, right? The younger, older issue. Tamar's twins are also identified this way. The older is identified as red. A red cord is attached to him. The younger, however, breaks through, breaches by, comes first. We'll read the story or we'll talk about it in a minute. The younger gets by the older and comes out first. And so I have the older, younger theme in Tamar as well as in Rebekah, as well as in Romans 9, 12. So obviously, any discussion of the meaning of the symbols of Jacob and Esau, because those are very complicated symbols, they represent nations, or if you will, they'll represent entities. Anybody that's going to try to figure out the symbols of Jacob and Esau are going to have to investigate the twins of Tamar, where the older will serve the younger, also represented there, that theme, the older serving the younger. And I can't stress this enough, so I'm going to repeat it a bunch of times today, just as with Bathsheba. Nothing makes me more upset than Bathsheba being identified as an adulteress. She was not. She was raped. By the way, King David is what? A descendant of Tamar, who is a Canaanite. Not even a Jew. But I can't stress enough, just as with Bathsheba, Tamar is greatly honored in Scripture. God's opinion of Tamar is 
very, very high. And for those who have a contrary view of Tamar, I recommend that you quickly reconsider the fact that you have a lower opinion of Tamar than God does by a substantial chasm. It's ridiculous. But it is common. And I know uh, that this diversion that Janet has just now sent us on, this Jonah, uh, Jonah, Judah, Tamar diversion, is probably not where anybody wanted to go. But I hope I can change that as we do attempt it. That means what by now? Have you figured out that the fact that I want to go to Korah and the talents is not going to happen today? i got 15 pages and there's no Korah on it. Not how I started today, but I thought, uh, she's right. I need to put Tamar into this discussion because of Rahab. It's appropriate that Tamar is a diversion today because when you get to Genesis 38, it doesn't make sense that it's there. Genesis 37 starts Joseph. Genesis 50 completes Joseph. The second chapter, all of a sudden, is not about Joseph at all. And it doesn't seem to make to fit in there. It doesn't seem to be directly connected to Joseph. It seems like it's a parenthesis. It's stuck in there. Why is Judah and Tamar stuck inside the account of Joseph? Because why? Because it's directly related to Joseph. It belongs there. It explains the story of Joseph. Who is Judah? Judah is the son. Is he the oldest son? No, he's not the oldest son. But somehow, Judah is the tribe of the Messiah. Christ comes through the Jewish tribe of Judah, not Reuben. Who is the oldest? That would make the most sense. Certainly not Joseph, who is the great type of Christ, but Judah. Why Judah? Why is that so? Why is Judah the one selected? Or does it have something to do with Tamar? question that comes out of all of this uh, that you should put uh, uh, in your Judah section with regard to Genesis 38 is what did Judah believe that made him the one through whom the Messiah would come. Note how I put that. I didn't ask you, what did he do? I asked you, what did he believe? Now, it isn't possible to read all of Genesis 38 today. It's too long. And, we'll, and we'll, we won't even get through that, much less get to Korah and, and uh, my real plan of the parable of the talent. So I'm just going to read the first 11 verses, and then I'm going to summarize the remaining uh, 19. Uh, I think the first 11 is some of the most extraordinary, mind-blowing. I remember reading it uh, before. I've done Judah in this church before, Judah and Tamar, and it's just wonderful to look at the faces of the people who have never read this account, who have no idea it's in the Bible. It's not well known, um, but it should be. And to watch you, I should film the audience as I often say. I really appreciate it when I have an unbeliever who hears this for the first time. Their response is so predictable, it's actually very enlightening. So here we go. We're going to read Judah and Tamar. It came to pass at the time that Judah departed from his brothers. Now remember, this is about 
Joseph. Judah does something in the account of Joseph. Judah is the one that's, that comes up with the idea, let's not kill him, let's sell him. It's a win-win for everybody. Now, it came to pass that Judah departed from his brothers. Why did he depart from his brothers? That's your first question. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adumite whose name was Hira. And Judah saw that there was a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. The daughter's name is not Shua. The Canaanite's name is Shua. So Shua is the father of the daughter. That's got to make sense to you. And he married her and went into her. So she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. Now i got to do some erasing now. So I got a son from a Canaanite woman whose father was Shua. Isn't that interesting? What's his name again? Shua. Yeah, that's sure fascinating, isn't it? You might see that a lot. What's going on there? Guy's name is Shua. So she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Now notice that. Let me repeat it. And Judah saw there was a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he married her and went into her. So she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. So Judah names Ur. The woman, the daughter of Shua, her, that's how she's identified, names Onan. And she conceived yet again and bore a son and called his name Shelah. So what's going on here? Those are little clues for you to understand the story. He was at Chezeb when she bore him. Then Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. So Ur is supposed to marry Tamar, and Judah picks Tamar. So far, so good? But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord killed him. Oops. And Judah said to Owen, Onan, sorry, go into your brother's wife and marry her and raise up an heir to your brother. But Onan knew that an heir would not be his, and it came to pass when he went into his brother's wife that he emitted on the ground, lest he should give an heir to his brother. And the Lord, and the thing which he did displeased the Lord, the Lord, therefore he killed him also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till my son Shelah is grown. For he said, lest he also die like his brother. And Tamar went and dwelt in her father's house. There's the story. That's quite a start, huh? Wouldn't you say? God kills two of the sons of Judah. What's the specifics of that? What I mean by that, were they struck dead instantly? What do you think? 
They were struck dead instantly. You should go around and find all the other people struck dead instantly and put them all together, right? That would be the first step. we got to know why these guys were dead, don't we? Let me read it again. God is displeased, therefore he killed him also. we got to figure out why this happened. Let's recap a bit. Here's Judah, a Jew, one of the twelve, one of the patriarchs of the nation of Israel. He has selected a Canaanite woman, the daughter of Shua, and married her. How's he doing so far? He has Ur that he names, and he names him, that means watcher. Onan, she names, it means strong. And Shelah, we don't know what that means. Some people will speculate, but I don't think you can definitively know. But how are things going so far? First, he leaves his brothers. He finds a Canaanite friend, that's uh, 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 Hera. Then he finds a Canaanite woman. He marries her. I don't think you could think anything is going well here. It's all going badly. Why did Judah do this, by the way? What, what made him go and do this? There's a bunch of positions on that. Well, the, the one that uh, is probably at the forefront is necessity. Uh, he could not duplicate what his father Jacob did. He did not have access to Laban, and so he uh, went to where the women were. It's kind of why most guys go to church. Same kind of philosophy. We got, And they'll go to a pagan church, get a wife, happens all the time. So it makes sense to me. Point of emphasis, remember that Judah is the one destined to be in the ancestral line of the Messiah. And this account that I just read to you must explain that fact. He must do something that explains why he is in the messianic line. Why of his Judah of the twelve. Judah next. Okay, now I'm not going to read this. I'm just going to summarize it. You go ahead and read along if you want. Judah, the next thing he does years later. See, he sent Tamar. One, he, he knows I can't let her have, I can't put Shelah anywhere near, him, near her. Why? He's going to be dead too. Who wants, who wants to marry Tamar? Anybody? Doesn't look like a good plan for a Canaanite. But years later, um, uh, uh, let me back up a second. Let me do it this way. First, he marries this woman. He has the three sons. When the sons get to a certain age to be married, he selects a wife. He selects Tamar for Ur. But Ur is wicked. Now, ask yourself, why is he defined as wicked? What wickedness is Ur involved in? It is wickedness that is so great that God intervenes, doesn't he? Whenever God intervenes, there's something really bad happening. This is not somebody that God will accept. God prevents Ur from consummating this marriage to Tamar. Questions become like this. How old is Tamar? How old is Ur? How long did Tamar stay in Judah's household before everyone knew she was going to be assigned to Ur? But how old is Ur? Is she older than him? 
So as soon as Ur is now dead, because he is wicked, then Onan is, uh, then, uh, would be the prevail, as the prevailing custom would have it, he's to substitute for Ur. And the record is specific. Onan knew that the heir would not be his. So put that word on the chart here. Let me erase all the other stuff I have so that you can start to see the emphasis. Uh, heir. He knew the heir wouldn't be his. He knew the heir. He was thinking about the heir. That word is constantly being repeated for a reason. That helps you understand the context. Onan knew the heir would not be his. And Onan took steps to deny the heir to Tamar and to Ur. Inheritance. When you think of heir, think of inheritance. Think of sonship. Okay, he's going to deny inheritance. He's going to deny sonship. He is going to deny an heir to who ultimately? Judah. And Judah is in the what? Messianic line. And God calls this what? Great wickedness. And he kills you instantly when you try this. Onan took steps to deny the heir to Tamar and to Ur and ultimately to Judah who is in the Messianic line and the result is that God strikes Onan dead. And again, clearly something very serious has happened. It has to do with the inheritance, the sonship and the Messianic line. I have two dead sons and as soon as those sons are dead, Judah pulls the plug to save Shelah. Sends Tamar back to her father's house and uh, now we've got to think of what must be true in this family at this point. The family is a wreck. Wouldn't you agree? Two dead sons. There's no possibility that Judah is going to let Shelah ever even near Tamar. But it also must be true that Tamar knows why the first two sons are dead. She's got to know. And what is she thinking? Put yourself in the position. You're about to be married. Groom struck dead. New groom comes. Groom struck dead. What's Tamar thinking? Coincidence? She's not thinking coincidence. She knows. Tamar knows why the two sons are dead. How much time between the killing of the two sons? First son is dead. Does Tamar say, how come he's dead? If she does say that, who does she say it to? Who can answer that question in this group of people? I listed everybody off. Who's in the play? Think of it as a plague, if you will. Somebody knows the answer. Tamar is going to go find out who knows the answer, and they're going to decide together. I'm going to tell you, if Tamar knows it's true what happened, then it's also true that Judah knows. Tamar cannot know this as a Canaanite woman in a vacuum. And Judah's wife, who also dies, by the way, that's the next verse. Two dead sons and a dead wife. Bang, bang, bang. What does this have to do with Joseph? Tamar, I'm sorry, Judah's wife also knows. So who's the one telling everybody what's going on? <laughs> now I have Shelah, who's definitely younger. 
Uh, uh, what's he think? As a afterthought, Shelah does not go near Tamar. But what is he right now? He's betrothed to her. That's how the cultural system works. The second brother, Onan, is immediately betrothed on the death of the first brother. Now the death of the third brother. He's immediately betrothed. Think of it this way. He's got a rope attached between him and a woman that killed her both brothers. She didn't kill both brothers. How's he feeling? He's, He's trying to hack that rope any way he can, isn't he? And so is Judah, and that's why he sends her away. Shelah is now betrothed to her. And he, by, by and by, does become the ancestor of the Shelanites. And they are in a tribe of Judah. Next week we'll get to that. So let's recap the recap. Judah has two dead sons and a dead wife. Tamar is in widow's clothes at her father's house. Time now passes. You can read that with me, or you can just read it by yourself uh, later, but I think you should read it. Time passes. Then word gets to Tamar that Judah is headed out to the field to shear sheep. So his wife is dead. His sons are dead. Some time passes. Quite a bit of time probably because I think Shelah uh, has now become old enough to uh, be married to Tamar. But she hears that Judah is going to shear sheep. What's the obvious question now? Who tells her? Who went to tell Tamar? She's at her father's house. I promise you, Judah is not talking to her. Nor is Shelah. Somebody's talking to her. It can't be the, the daughter of Shua, the married wife of Judah, because she's dead. So who is telling Tamar that Judah is on his way to shear sheep? That becomes very important. And why did they tell Tamar? I submit that the sudden deaths of Ur and Onan had those around Judah very much aware of why God had killed them. I think there was a committee meeting, an employee safety meeting, if you will. We're all going to get together and say we got two dead sons, God killed them. Why did he do it? has something to do with the messianic line. has something to do with the doctrine of Christ. It has something to do with inheritance, which is salvation. Sonship, which is salvation. God will intervene when someone attempts to destroy his messianic line. And he will do so quickly and forcefully. It is great wickedness to try to disrupt the messianic line. So, the sudden deaths of Ur and Onan had those around Judah very much aware why God had killed them and what was supposed to happen. What is supposed to happen? What is going to happen? How are you going to stop it? You're not going to stop it. If you try to stop it, what does God do? Boom, lack, 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 lack. I listened to that for 15 years, coaching basketball, along with R-E, R-E-B, R-E-B-O-U-N-D. I can't get out of my head. There forever. Somebody asked a long time ago if they'd ever heard another sermon where the pastor said, boom, lack, lack, lack. Probably not. This will be the one place. I got a wonderful letter. I, I should read it to you next week I, I, if I remember it. Uh, 
or a, a gentleman that's very supportive. We, they are the guardian angels of our of our operation. That uh, he says some good things about how unique we are. That could be good or bad, but uh, that's why I thought of that. Anyway, it's going to happen. Tamar is going to be in the messianic line. God is going to make certain of it. Why is He going to do that? You're not. No one's stopping God. And everybody knows it. Certainly Shella knows it. Judah knows it. And Tamar knows it. And she's waiting now. She's in widow's clothes and she's waiting. She stayed in widow's clothes a long time. And as soon as she hears that Judah's on the move, she responds to that information by taking off her widow's clothes and putting on the veil and the clothing of a temple prostitute. That's the context. The text says that Shella is grown up now and he's not going to be married to her and that's clear. She knows that. So now Judah's on the move and she has a plan. And she launches her carefully conceived plan. She has a lot of time to think about this plan. And it, by the way, is perfect. She intends to be the mother of the heir. Of everyone in the story, the only one that cares about this so far, the sonship, this heirship, this inheritance, this messianic line, the only one that cares about it, that does anything that cares about it in any way, is Tamar. If you want to have a heroine of the story, she's the heroine. If you have a commentary in your Bible that describes her as evil and treacherous and wicked and deceptive, Nonsense. So she launches her conceived plan. She intends to be the mother of the heir, the mother of the promised Messiah. Now she didn't know, I think, specifically how she fit. She probably thought, much like Eve thought, that the very next child is the Messiah, is the seed of the woman. So how does a Canaanite woman become so devoted to this truth, this This truth, the truth of God. Who taught her this? Who taught her about the Messiah coming through the line of Judah? Who in the story could possibly teach a Canaanite girl who is from a pagan culture that God is the God of the Jews and someone in the line of Judah is going to be the ancestral mother of the Messiah? Who could teach her that? Who's on your list? Who could know it? Judah. The only one left. Doesn't have access to any of the other brothers. Doesn't have access to Jacob. There's no family dinners. No book face. Can't do that. No text Mexicanine or whatever it is. Judah. He's the only one of all present that would tell her. He did a mighty fine job, didn't he? She is not going to, she's got her teeth into this bone and is not letting go. Judah knows the promise and he taught Tamar. He probably selected her through a process that made it obvious that she would believe the truth. It's the only explanation that makes sense. Anyway, she is now 
targeting Judah. She's headed for Judah. Ask some questions. How far is he traveling? Where is she? What's the intersective point? How fast is she? How fast is he? He's got employees. How many are with him? Who's with the sheep? She intends to intercept him and institute phase one of her strategy. That being the consummation and the price paid. The redemption of the promised pledge, if you will, or of the promise. Phase two is three months away. But this is her opportunity and she's not going to let it pass her by. Dumps the widow's clothes, puts on a veil, puts on the clothes of a temple prostitute, knows that Judah will see her and will be in a position where she can take advantage of it. Again, consider her focus, her motivation, her desire to bear the child of Judah, the to be in the messianic line, there's a sense of urgency when you read it, a sense of desperation. And it's all things that God honors her for. Okay? So she positions herself. She's waiting for Judah. How did she get ahead of him? He leaves. Somebody goes to her, tells her he leaves. She somehow gets ahead of him and is waiting for him. She do this. How old is she? Maybe 25 tops. What's she got? The fastest horse in Canaan? Knows exactly where he's going to go. Her intel is really good. Too good. What's it mean? She got satellite, global positioning, surveillance, video camera systems, maybe a, an implanted chip in Judah's forehead. How does she know where he is? What's the obvious answer to that? Somebody helping her. Gotta be. She must have somebody out there. Obviously, God is protecting her. She'll take off into a very dangerous place or area by herself. If that happens and she survives it, who's protecting her? God is. And Bill asked a great question earlier during the offering presentation that we should record. People ask me, please record the offering presentations and put them on the Internet. And I say, because I refer to them all the time, and I say, sure, I'll do that, until I ask the guys doing it. And they say, don't you dare do that. I don't want that hate mail. And you're right. You don't want it. Yeah, you do. It's kind of cool. But the issue is not, why do people die? The issue is, why is anybody alive at all? It should only be death. But there isn't just death. There's life. Why does anybody live? Quit asking why are people dying. Start asking why are people living? Because this shouldn't be. Proof of God, right? God is life. Anyway, so there she sits, betrothed to Shelah, planning to essentially seduce Judah, knowing that such an act would be subject to her being given the death penalty. She's a betrothed woman about to have uh, intimacy with another man, her father-in-law at this point. Her motivation is to ensure her place in the Messianic lineage and, and therefore into the covenant nation of Israel, a motivation that is given approval by God. Nowhere in Scripture is Tamar criticized, only honored. 
And by the way, that's the same for Rebecca. Everybody says Rebecca is evil and conniving and Jacob is sneaky and he's a thief and he stole poor Esau. Blah, 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 nonsense. Nowhere in Scripture is Rebecca criticized for what she did. She's honored. Same for Jacob. He's, the nation of Israel is named for Jacob, for goodness sake. So Judah sees Tamar now and not knowing it is Tamar, again, she's dressed He assumes she is a temple prostitute, a harlot, and says this. Read it yourself. Please let me come into you. She doesn't have to say a word. She sits there in the right place and waits. She knows this is going to happen. How does she know? When he asks, please let me come into you, Tamar says, price paid. I'm taking that from the Hebrew betrothal ceremony. There must be a price paid for this. And he offers her a young goat. I'll give you a young goat. Please, he says. Let me get the box in the right place. Please, she says. Okay, what's the price? I'll give you a young goat. What does he not have? He does not have a young goat with him. Where are the young goats? Headed towards them. So what does she know to do next? She knows he doesn't have a young goat. She knows he's going to offer a young goat. She knows a lot about this man. She obviously lived with him for a while. How do I put this? Do you think this is the first goat rope? Probably not. So, Tamar wants a pledge of security. Think pawn shop now. She's not buying. I'm not going to take your goat off or you don't even have a goat. The young goat's not with you. So, I want a pledge of security. I want some collateral. I'll take the collateral... You go get the goat. Maybe I'll see you again. Maybe I won't. What's the chances? He asks her, what do you require? i got to speed up now. And now phase two of her plan. She's got the right question now. The question she wants. And she tells him, I want your signet ring. I want the bracelets and the cords that go with it. And I want your staff. That's what she wants. And those things are unique and distinct properties of Judah that no one else has. She wants them. Because she knows she's under a death penalty sentence. She asks him for that. They are going to be evidence and proof. This is a plan that where she has figured out every element of it. And Tamar is well aware of what will come. She knows that she's going to be pregnant. How does she know that? How does she know that she's going to be pregnant? Because i got two dead sons that tell me she's going to be pregnant. God wants her pregnant. He wants her pregnant to the point where if you refuse, you're dead. She's going to be pregnant. 
And she knows that Judah will then demand that she be put to death as soon as he finds out because she's betrothed to Shelah and he can put her to death. And she knows also that if she has his signet ring and his cord and his staff, that he won't do it. She has hit him perfectly right every single time. It's amazing when you consider it all in total. Judah gives her the ring, the cord, the bracelets that are implied in that, and the staff. He gives it all to her. Doesn't go, are you kidding? What do you want that for? Should have immediately understood. That would be like me saying, give me all your credit cards and your social security number and your driver's license and all the picture ID that you have. And then you go ahead and go get your goat. Come back. He does it. Gives it all to her. We're going to have to revisit that hopefully next week. And Tamar conceives as she knew she would. She knows she's going to be pregnant. Lays aside her veil. Puts on her garments of widowhood. And begins waiting for her trial. Because the trial is coming as soon as it is obvious that she is pregnant and it is not Shelah. And Judah sends the goat to redeem his ring, by the way. He, he wanted his ring and his cord and his staff back. And the harlot is nowhere to be found. Are anybody shocked by that? Of course not. And he asks, um, where's the harlot? And people tell him, well, harlot? Uh, no harlot here. What harlot? What's that sound like to you? Sounds like a cover-up to me. There's never been a harlot here ever. You mirage. All my life, this place never had a harlot at it. I don't know what you're talking about. So who all is involved in this? It can't be just Tamar. That's not logical. So Judah lets the harlot go. He doesn't pursue her, and he loses all of his identification. And word then eventually comes to Judah that Tamar is three months pregnant. And Judah predictably demands that she be burned. And Tamar then immediately produces Judah's ring, cord, and staff and says the man that got me pregnant is identified by these items. Here's essentially his DNA. Oh, look, it's you. And Judah immediately acknowledges that he is the father of the child and that Tamar is righteous. And Tamar knew that Judah would tell the truth. Because he could have lied. But she knew he would tell the truth. And the real identity of the mystery harlot now has come to the fore. And Judah now knows who the harlot was and he knows why the harlot was there. He knows that it was Tamar and he knew that she was trying to be the mother of the Messiah. And he knows why she wants to be that. Because he's the one that taught her the truth. And he confesses to this. The evidence is after all overwhelming. I'm not as impressed. But you see the confession here, right, is very similar to the confession of Achan. Next week, uh, we'll investigate that as well. Tamar 
is the one, though, in the story who desired the messianic promise. She's the only one. Er, er rejected it. Onan rejected it. The daughter of Shua rejected it. Judah withheld it from Shelah. He withheld Shelah from it. Only Tamar, only Tamar wanted this promise. And now this really cool part comes. I'll read this because it needs to be read properly. Now it came to pass at the time of giving birth. Tamar is going to be having the birth now. And here's what it says. That behold. Behold. Twins. Behold. Twins. Twins are coming. And the behold in front of it tells you, stop, this is significant. This is Esau, Jacob, this is Cain, Abel. This is incredible. Twins are coming. And as she's giving birth, one, one of the babies sticks out his hand and the midwife ties a red cord to it. So that's the red baby, just like Esau. That's the oldest. He, as soon as the hand came out, the wrist, she grabs, ties it, and says, this is the older this is the red one. This is Zerah the, uh, in the line of Achan. But the younger, Perez, suddenly passes by. Somehow the one that stuck out his hand and should have been the first and had the scarlet uh, cord is passed by the younger one. Breached by, passing by, breaking through. All of those terms. Okay, final thoughts. Got to hurry. I know that's your favorite words. Got to hurry and final thoughts. Tamar is a harlot, a temple harlot, dressed like one. Rahab is a temple harlot. By the way, that's how Rahab knows things. When the spies come to her, she knows everything. How does she know it? She's in the, she's in the temple or she's in the, in the castle, whichever one. Both request Rahab did, and Tamar did, and they receive this true token, if you will, this cord. And that was a promise. It was a guarantee that they and their families will be spared. They wanted security. She wanted her son to live. She wanted her family to live. She knows Judah, and he does not have any association with her intimately, but he does take her into his family. She wanted that covenant promise that she's inside the nation of Israel. She wants essentially exactly what Rahab wanted. They negotiated for the same thing. Security. And they're given security, right? Notice that. They are given security. So where are you in the story? You've also been promised to and you have been given security. We call it eternal security. Anyone that tells you there's no doctrine of eternal security in the Old Testament, take them to Tamar and Rahab. Someone has given us a true co a token, a crimson cord, if you will, a ring, a cord, a staff, that guarantees us that we will be spared. Ask and it will be given to you. Rahab asks. Tamar asks. They knew that's all they needed to do. By the way, so do the Gibeonites. I love the Gibeonites. They are also honored in Scripture because they figured out, get some security, 
can't break it. 